Very good morning and salam alaikum, ahlan wa salam. To this morning's speakers, thank you very much for giving your valuable time to be with us this morning as we explore and discuss today's discussion topic of short-term pain, long-term opportunity, taking stock of an extraordinary moment in the Saudi Arabian-United States business relationship. I also want to thank the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce, MECAC, the U.S. Saudi Arabian Business Council, and the Royal Embassy of Saudi Arabia's Commercial Attaché's Office in Washington, D.C., for co-hosting and co-sponsoring this morning's event. Thank you also to the many staff and volunteers at the respective organizations who provided their time to make this morning's program possible. We are happy to welcome today's viewers from around the world that have joined us as well. Moderating the program, introducing the speakers, and providing background and context will be National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations founding president and CEO, Dr. John Duke Anthony. Not everyone is aware that Dr. Anthony is no stranger to Saudi Arabia. Many are also unaware that he's characteristically reluctant to speak about himself. However, in this regard, those of us who work under his leadership aren't as reluctant. Dr. Anthony first went to Saudi Arabia in the 1960s and repeatedly every year since. In fact, last Thanksgiving break, Dr. Anthony, a National Council board member and former United States Army and Defense Attaché to Saudi Arabia, Colonel Abbas Daouk, led a delegation of cadets, midshipmen, and faculty from America's Military Service Academies on a study cultural immersion visit in association with the Saudi Arabian Defense Office in Washington, the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Defense, and with the support of Saudi Arabian Ambassador to the United States of America. Her Royal Highness, Princess Rima bint Bandar. Dr. Anthony also served as a director of the Saudi Arabian Studies Program as part of the Saudi Arabian-United States Joint Commission for Economic Development housed in the United States Department of Treasury. He has also been the sole American that has attended each and every one of the ministerial and heads of state summits of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, that has been held in Saudi Arabia and in Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates since 1981. His scholarship, publications, and speaking have led him to provide hard-to-come-by first-hand empirical knowledge and understanding of Saudi Arabia and United States relations. I also want to recognize our board chairman, Mr. John Pratt, who's been involved personally with today's co-sponsoring organizations for over 35 years. He's worked, lived, and raised an American family in Saudi Arabia, just like Chris Johnson, uh, while working at Aramco for over 35 years. Let us not forget the many people, lives, and livelihoods that have been affected by the COVID-19 and the many Americans uh, as well. Thank you again for being with us. I now will turn this program over to our moderator, context provider, and leader, Dr. John Duke Anthony. Dr. Anthony. Thank you, Patrick, very much, and uh, welcome, everyone. And I'm especially uh, pleased and proud and honored to be part of a team this morning. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been in the presence of so few uh, Americans who specialize on Saudi Arabia, uh, who have themselves been so effective and so respected and so accepted uh, as bridge makers between Saudi Arabia and the United States. Uh, first of all, uh, there are innumerable myths that uh, Americans carry in their minds 
regarding uh, Saudi Arabia that have uh, both been unfair, misrepresentative, and misleading, and uh, combine uh, constitute part of the challenge that we have this morning and on other occasions to, to set the record straight. Uh, for example, uh, here are two to begin with, uh, because so many people perceive the kingdom as an object, not an actor, uh, as a mountain of money, uh, not as the repository of an extraordinarily rich culture and civilization uh, that is key uh, to the dreams and longings of uh, two billion uh, people uh, on the planet. It is at one and the same time the epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage, of faith and spiritual devotion uh, to these uh, humans on the planet, uh, which is overlooked when people perceive it uh, in a completely different uh, way. Now, the origins of this relationship are also uh, mysterious to many, uh, but we can clear them up now. Uh, two myths have to do uh, with medical diplomacy and uh, trade. Uh, it's usually the consensus in most American courses on business, international and international organization, that trade follows the flag. No, in this instance, it's exactly the opposite. And so the views that people have of uh, Saudi Arabia in this context or upside down, inside out, and backwards. Uh, indeed, uh, the United States set a treaty of amity and commerce with the Sultanate of Oman in 1833. And Oman sent the first Arab ambassador to the United States in 1840. And with regard to uh, Saudi Arabia as uh, first speaker, as a second speaker, is well aware because he's been a player. Uh, has to do with the medical diplomacy uh, part. Uh, from the 1890s, the Arabian mission of the Dutch Reformed Church of America uh, posted nurses, doctors, and teachers in southern Iraq, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Oman. And after World War One, it became a uh, habit, uh, ritual and regimen for a number of these medical personnel to cross over from Bahrain into Saudi Arabia and proceed to Riyadh, where they provided medical services and treatments to uh, members of the government, including the ruling family uh, there. And what's especially important is that they didn't send a bill, uh, no invoice as a result of this. So doing this over and over and over led King Abdulaziz uh, ultimately to say, who are these Americans? They come only to help and to ask for nothing in return. Now, if you think that that did not uh, constitute a very favorable atmosphere uh, within which uh, at a politically propitious moment, King Abdulaziz awarded the first uh, concession uh, from mineral rights to Standard Oil of California, it would be hard to imagine what would. Of course, the search uh, uh, of geologists and others was indeed for water, and they found some water, but not much. What they found was a, a mainly a different liquid, uh, had a different color, had a different uh, thickness and viscosity. Uh, but it turned out to be the source, 
strategically vital because it drives the engines of all of the world's economies, large and small, new and old, and uh, uh, intermediate ones uh, in these extremes. So uh, the kingdom has these aspects of its founding origins of its special relationship with the United States. The uh, political and the geopolitical and the defense security aspect does come uh, from an event uh, that was spearheaded uh, by uh, Delano Roosevelt's grandfather, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, mid-February 1945, where King Abdulaziz met with President Roosevelt in the Great uh, Bitter Lakes on the USS Quincy. And uh, Abdulaziz subsequently said, I learned more from that man, Roosevelt, in five minutes than I had previously learned in a lifetime of studying about uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, the so-called Holy Land, and what became Israel and the devastation of the Palestinian uh, people. So that aspect uh, is indeed uh, correct and important and has all kinds of short and longer term implications. Uh, but it was preceded by the other two breakthroughs, the medical diplomacy of which Delano Roosevelt and John Pratt are acutely aware, as is the chairman of our international board, uh, Ambassador Richard Murphy, who's the dean of all of the former American assistant secretaries of state for Near East and South Asian affairs. One cannot get to a higher position in the United States government, uh, having to do with policies and positions and actions and attitude towards uh, all 22 of the countries that constitute the Arab region and uh, half at least of the uh, 57 countries that are members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, uh, the Muslim world's uh, highest uh, political body. Uh, so we have a team of players here who are not just scholars and academics. No, they're much more than that. Uh, these are people who have had a firsthand empirical educational experience on the ground in the kingdom. And it is from those vantage points and perspectives, uh, using those prisms for perspective, those lenses for learning, uh, that we're fortunate uh, within this hour uh, to learn a lot. None of us will come away uh, as we are at the moment. At the end, we'll look back and say I'm much more knowledgeable and well-informed than before. Our first speaker is Christopher Johnson, uh, who has had uh, going on half a century of uh, involvement in and uh, first-hand presence in the capital of Saudi Arabia, uh, Riyadh. And he's had uh, a quarter of a century uh, with an office in Riyadh, where he uh, works to advise clients uh, having to do with their uh, needs and concerns for understanding of the country's uh, business uh, dynamics and opportunities and rules and regulations and laws, its politics, uh, its environment, its legal uh, aspects, and its regulatory uh, structure. Uh, Chris Johnson is a former uh, recent president of the American Business Group uh, in Riyadh. It's an association of U.S. citizens who live and work in the kingdom and have the common theme of business, 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 plus trade, 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 
plus investment, investment, investment. These nine things uh, rolled into one uh, to advance and protect and project and strengthen as well as expand America's involvement and interest in Saudi Arabia. We turn first to uh, Christopher uh, Johnson, who's also been the uh, uh, chairman of the uh, Middle East Council of uh, Chambers of, of Commerce and Industry, to which uh, Patrick uh, Mancino uh, alluded. Uh, so he's had both of these chairmanships in Saudi Arabia as well as MICAS. And MICAS represents all six of the GCC uh, countries. Uh, without further ado, Chris Johnson. John Duke, I'm very humbled by that uh, generous introduction, and I can't claim to be a scholar, but I have been here, it's true, for many years. I've been here since arriving in Jeddah in 1978. Uh, of those 40 years, 20 have been lived here in Saudi Arabia. Um, I'm also a foreign service child, so I have also lived in Germany, South Africa, Morocco, and Canada. And uh, from that perspective of having experienced how other countries um, address some of the current issues of the day, one thought that occurred to me as you speak is that, um, you know, as we look at our own country in the U.S., where we're struggling with issues of racial justice, you know, in many ways, Saudi Arabia is a great model for um, harmonious respect and cooperation. Saudi Arabia not only welcomes uh, Muslims in the pilgrimage from every country and treats them as equals with great respect, but internally in our economy here, we have 10 million expats and a population of 30 million, so that's a third of the population. In my own office, we have professionals from eight different countries representing the Middle East, Africa, South and Central Asia, China, South America. And so we're privileged to enjoy the benefits of true diversity and cultural, racial, and everything else. And we view that as our great strength. So in some ways, I think that our experience um, is relevant and positive in terms of uh, some of the issues that the U.S. is struggling with. And in many ways, the way we cooperate and respect each other and treat each other with justice and equality, you know, could be viewed as a good model. And I think Saudi Arabia takes some credit for that. So uh, that's sort of one contemporary uh, relevance that I see from my experiential presence in Saudi Arabia that you generously refer to. Um, now, the theme that uh, I wanted to present is short-term pain, long-term opportunity, because uh, there's no denying that uh, Saudi Arabia faces some, uh, I would say, disproportionate and unique challenges. Not only do they suffer from a serious uh, contagion um, with the coronavirus, but it's uniquely dependent on oil. Um, uh, demand has fallen 20%. That can't but harm the domestic economy. Um, and these challenges are no respecters of persons or borders, and the kingdom is admittedly beginning to flatten the contagion curve and to adapt to new economic realities. And there's been good news. The uh, number of cases seems to be flattening. It's come down. And we're all back in the office, as you can see. Um, and uh, we're optimistic and we're positive. And, uh, you know, some positive uh, aspects are that the kingdom has been transforming its economy in ways that are going to accommodate the um, uh, uh over vulnerability and dependence on oil exports in Vision 2030. And also, uh, it's fortunate to have built up $320 billion in sovereign wealth and $473 billion in central bank reserves. And it's dead at $193 billion is modest, 25% of GDP. So there's ample scope for 
financial survival through the transition to better days. Um, and uh, on the positive side, again, the crisis has accelerated. Vision 2030 economic and social reforms, uh, you know, which are diversifying, deregulating, privatizing the existing rent-seeking economy and also modernizing its society. And so I think um, by uh, achieving that boost towards existing prescient um, recognition of the need to change, that's another positive that we can look at. Now, uh, what is the business impact um, that uh, this crisis has imposed? In reality, given those dual challenges, no industry has benefited. Uh, experiences range from neutral to deeply negative. And transportation, hospitality, entertainment, media, they've been severely impacted. Um, least severely, food, consumer goods, and moderately, energy and healthcare. Now, healthcare is kind of a sensitive topic. There's been a lot of priority given to reforming and improving healthcare and, and digitization and uh, distance medicine. And there's some disappointment that that didn't bear bigger fruit, but the importance of the change has been highlighted. So I think you'll see significant improvements in distance medicine, uh, digitizing, sharing information between labs and policymakers, monitoring diagnosis. And maybe most importantly, a shift in priorities from service to prevention. Um, working at home has been widely applauded around the world, and we did have a shutdown for some weeks here in Saudi Arabia. Um, here it works less well. Our experience is that there was quite a dip in productivity, and that, I think, um, is attributable to a special quality of Saudi Arabia that I think is a positive one, is that the Business and social environment is more relational than transactional, unlike in New York or London, where the question is, what have you done for me today? Here, um, trust is the point of the realm. It's something you build gradually and in person. It's not something that can be replicated over electronic media. Um, so um, uh, we're very grateful to be privileged to return to the office and to cooperate as a team among the many um cultures and professional systems that are required to make our service effective for our multinational clients. Now focusing, uh, shifting for a moment to the longer term opportunities. Uh, the IMF has predicted that there'll be a stronger rebound in emerging markets and longer term weakness in developed markets. So that's in Saudi Arabia's favor. They cite the strong government balance sheets, including governance, promising opportunities, all evident here in Saudi Arabia. We were shocked when oil prices fell into negative territory in April in the U.S., though Brent crude has doubled in, since then and at $40 a barrel. It's uh, down 37% for the year, so it's coming back. Um, J.P. Morgan predicts that with current prices, we're going to face a 5 million barrel a day drop in supply, and there'll be closures and cancellations of expensive non-OPEC and U.S. projects. This is a gap that Saudi Arabia stands to fill because um, it's the low-cost producer and it's abundant in its supply and low in its costs. Um, so OPEC plus cutbacks have limited Saudi market potential. So query, um, what will come out of this? Um, there's been a wrenching change and drop in prices and a shakeout in terms of uh, production. You know, could this be, uh, could this foretell a shift from the cartel model to more of a free market in which the low-cost, high-production producer 
um, follows its natural self-interest in maximizing market share and revenues. When you look at Saudi oil, as John Duke was saying, it's um, abundant, 267 billion barrels of reserves. That's 24% of the global total. That's 90 years of production at current rates. It's available at 12.5 million barrel a day capacity that's unutilized, underutilized. It's cheap pr to produce, including both transport and, uh, and the production costs well under $10 a barrel. So Saudi Arabia is potentially positioned to expand production and market share as economies recover. And uh, personally, I'm thinking that may not be a bad move. Um, so what is the policy response been in Saudi Arabia? As elsewhere, um, the biggest challenge has been the proper balance between health and economic concerns. And of course, public health is paramount as people are daily dying. But economic well-being is also a health issue. So that impacts confidence and morale and excessive and unnecessary closures can be very detrimental to people's ability to provide for their uh, families. Um, and uh, the Saudi authorities, I think uh, comparable to the U.S., their package of relief um, measures has been effective. They've had business loans, they've had salary subsidies for employees, they've relaxed labor rules to allow companies to adjust salary and payroll to their ability, given the way some industries have been heavily impacted. Um, and, you know, another very good factor is that we've seen a newfound forced public-private collaboration um, more so than before, and as we face a common enemy, and as the government struggles to find the right policy tools. So, for example, it tripled VAT to 15%, and it introduced some uh, customs increases. And there was pushback from the business sector, and the government has uh, suspended the application of those customs uh, increases. So, I think you see a sense of sensitivity towards the stakeholders in the economic system that could be a positive uh, indication of things to come. Now, in terms of the global trends and where Saudi Arabia fits into that, you know, I'm a committed free trader, I believe in globalization, so I was blindsided by the trend towards nationalism and protectionism, you know, most troubling in my own country. Um, Saudi Arabia is also facing the same choices between globalization and protectionism and its trade, investment, localization, labor, and immigration policies. Um, you know, a, a likely scenario, though, even though we have yet to hear a clear articulation of the new policy, will be to double down on Vision 2030, which assumes open markets and a key role for foreign investment, which is very important and I think will become more so, and opportunities will grow as well. When Saudi Arabia joined the WTO in 2006, it embraced free trade, national treatment, and a privatized and deregulated economy, and it sincerely believed in those principles. And that's reflected in Vision 2030, which takes this a step further and it pivots the entire economic system from rent-seeking to free market and based on privatization, entrepreneurship, diversification. And... Um, Saudi Arabia is very much inspired by Silicon Valley, where entrepreneurial geniuses from all over the world are together building a digitized high-tech future. I think Saudi Arabia wants to follow that. And it's been very generous in issuing entrepreneurship licenses. This is a new and wonderful thing. I think they've given some 200 to great thinkers and um, innovators from all over the world um, with very low costs and very high incentives. Um, 
So, um, you know, and, and, and also Saudi Arabia has some natural and compelling reasons to embrace free trade because it's uniquely dependent on access to foreign markets and access to foreign products, particularly in oil and petrochemicals, which um, have to be exported to generate revenues. And then on the other hand, um, uh, for food, Saudi Arabia is heavily dependent on food imports. And so in many key critical um, um, uh, strategic uh, areas, Saudi Arabia really uh, has to work um, as a uh, active uh, participant in the free international global market. Now, turning to some of the domestic um, um, objectives and changes, and why is this going to be an attractive place for foreign investment? Uh, Vision 2030 focuses heavily on ease of business, and it's made some huge strides in, with e-government, online registrations, licenses, visas, huge improvements over the old system, which um, partook to some degree of the Middle East characteristic red tape and bureaucracy, which was very um, uh, challenging, uh, to put it politely. Um, the crisis has brought more of the same. It's brought webcam court hearings. It's brought online submissions of uh, applications and briefs in court. It's streamlined the notarization process and many more of this type of thing. And the government seems to be trying to find other ways to adjust to the new reality. And in terms of the social model, the crisis arrived at a time when we were already in the midst of a historic transformation, including cinemas, gender desegregation, curtailing of the um, responsibilities of religious police. Um, and, you know, during the lockdowns, when we had curfew, uh, uh, the mosques were closed for reasons of contagion, stores remained open uh, during a limited period, and including prayer times. That's something new, and there was little apparent pushback. So um, we may see some longer-term um, uh, adaptations to global norms in, in these areas as well. Um, and then more importantly, sort of in a broad geopolitical sphere, and again, I'm uh, not the scholar that John Duke is, and I'd be curious to hear his perspective, but I've read some ana uh, analyses that suggest that there's a long-term and fundamental turning away from some of the sectarian and confrontational spirit of 1979 to a more progressive focus, particularly since 2011, on economic opportunity, social modernization, geopolitical peace, and prosperity. You know, most recently in Sudan, hopefully Algeria, and, and other places as well. I see some very positive signs, and I see some very positive policies in Saudi Arabia in those same directions. Um, to conclude, I tried to come up with some pithy reflections that may um, be relevant. Um, there are many imponderables that remain. When will we find a vaccine? How will the crisis resolve? Will old habits return? Have we seen some permanent changes? And in this context, I thought of Mark Twain who said, it's dangerous to make forecasts, especially about the future. And then again, um, you know, the kingdom could come out a big winner in oil markets. It faces an opportunity in a free market environment to maximize market share and revenues. Um, while at the same time becoming a diversified, modernized, and globalized powerhouse. The two could go together. This um, uh, move to maximize revenues as oil prices are predicted in the medium term to return the $55 plus by BP and its new business plan and others. This is enough to generate some real cushion of, um, of, of uh, you know, ongoing uh, potential to finance the transition. 
um, regarding opportunities for foreign investors. I'm thought of the business whiz kid of this day, Victor Rothschild, who said, the time to buy is when there's blood on the street, even if it's your own. So that also seems to be relevant. Business here is confident in new models, new business revenue sources with rich post-crisis investment opportunities and with a prominent role for foreign investment. So I hope our American um, listeners uh, will take note of that as well. And finally, you know, in discerning opportunity amidst uncertainty from Louis Pasteur, luck favors the prepared mind. So on that note, thank you all for bearing with me. I hope I've inspired some questions and discussion. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, our next speaker is, uh, in terms of uh, name, a household name uh, to virtually all Americans, if not uh, all of uh, the adult generation of uh, Western Europe, the European Union, and Asia as well. Uh, one can say that uh, about fewer uh, than the fingers on one's hand. Uh, regarding uh, other Americans. So, Delano Roosevelt is the grandson of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the only American to be elected to uh, president, be president, uh, four consecutive uh, terms. He's also a lineal descendant of uh, former President Theodore Roosevelt, mm-hmm. known as Teddy Roosevelt, the rough rider. So, to, uh, had an immense impact on uh, America's environment, the saving of that uh, forest and natural resources, which enabled uh, a state park system uh, uh, to develop to the degree uh, it has. And he also uh, had to take the courageous risk of breaking up some of the monopolies of the largest U.S. corporation. Uh, no easy task. No president since him has been able to, to do that. Uh, he's also the uh, grandson of Eleanor Roosevelt, a champion of human and uh, interracial uh, uh, relations. Now, his father served uh, six terms in Congress, uh, representing uh, a district in California and subsequently became ambassador uh, to Geneva, where most of the international organizations other than the United Nations uh, centered and headquartered uh, to this day, including the International Labor including the International Committee for the Red Cross. And his father was instrumental, uh, simply a player at the time, and the passage of the Fourth Geneva Convention, uh, which applies to this day uh, to the duties and obligations of an occupying power. And this uh, particularly has reference uh, to the occupied Palestinian peoples in East Jerusalem and and the West. Uh, Of interest uh, is that uh, Israel was the number one pushing for the passage of this uh, uh, path-breaking, pioneering uh, legislation, and then subsequently has become the number one violator of its principles, its ideas, its ideals, its obligations. Uh, so his father was in the thick of that, and uh, 
Dell uh, spent a portion of his childhood growing up in Geneva, uh, which gave him familiarity with the cultures, languages, and uh, dynamics of uh, the European uh, countries. Uh, so he's unique, too, in that respect. He's been in Arabia and the Gulf now, not for years, but decades. And he is a former chairman, uh, like Chris Johnson, of the Middle East Council of uh, Chambers of, of Commerce. Uh, he's a former member of the uh, American Business Association in the eastern uh, province of Saudi Arabia. He's presently the chairman, president, and CEO of the Saudi Arabian U.S. Uh, Business Council, uh, headquartered in the United States uh, in Northern Virginia, headquartered in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. Uh, Delano Roosevelt uh, himself has had uh, a political career of representing constituents in Long Beach, California. And unlike our other speakers, he has had a specialty in the environment and also solid waste management and electricity, uh, power generating here. We're not talking about being a, a member of a committee that was established and blew away with the wind like dandelions in the dust. No, uh, these responsibilities touched every single one of his constituents. So he's brought that to the table uh, in this particular business. And his specialty is structuring uh, cross-national uh, uh, business exchanges and uh, delineating the opportunities and obligations of the parties at both ends uh, of the bridge. And he is uh, the heir to that 1945 agreement. But don't make too much of that. It, it's been overdrawn. Uh, uh, keep your mind and analysis anchored uh, in the period after World War I, where it was the Bahrain Mission Hospital, on um, which he has served as a board member. So here we're talking about medical expertise in Delano Roosevelt as well, and service expertise uh, involving Delano Roosevelt and humanitarian uh, needs, concerns, and interests. Please welcome Delano Roosevelt. My dear Amo John Duke, what a uh, gracious introduction. Uh, for those of you who don't understand the term Amo, We'll, we'll tell you later, but it's a, it's definitely from the heart and endearment, and I thank you for that. Uh, I also want to uh, thank uh, Chris Johnson. Uh, uh, half and half, Chris, you're an incredibly hard act to follow, and so now you've got me very nervous that I've really got to step up my game here to follow uh, your portion here, but I'm going to do my best. I, I do want to thank uh, 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 Ahmed from the Saudi Embassy here in Washington, D.C., uh, that he's here today. He's a, a, a tremendous, uh, he's a great friend and a tremendous force as the commercial attache for the Royal Embassy here in D.C., and just such a, a bright and uh, uh, bright man who is a, a, a tremendous, tremendous good character. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, for mentioning my grandmother, Eleanor. Normally, that's something that I have to do. You and I both have the same respect and love for what she did and who she was. 
because uh, I'm just as much her her grandson as well as as, uh, as, as my uh, grandfather Franklin. Uh, the uh, the AMH, the American Mission Hospital that you mentioned in Bahrain, was truly was uh, was truly and remains a force for providing uh, medical care, high quality medical care throughout the Mideast. Based in Bahrain, they're still growing. Uh, they've grown four new uh, 24-hour critical care facilities in the last five years and are building a beautiful new $70 million children, women and children's specialist hospital in Bahrain. Uh, now, most hospitals in the region have uh, pediatrics, but there are no uh, designated, uh, you know, like a chalk or something like that, uh, and, and they're well on their way to building this fantastic facility and continue to be of service to not only Bahrain, but to the Mideast, uh, to the GCC at large. Um, Chris made a, uh, a very well he described and painted a terrific picture, a very clear picture of what's been happening in the kingdom, where they are currently, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where they are currently and where they're heading. Um, so what I would like to do is to share with you a little bit of what it is uh, that I do now. As of November 2019, uh, I was asked by my two new bosses, co-chairs of the U.S.-Saudi Business Council, uh, Steve Demetrio from Jacobs Engineering and uh, Sheikh Abdullah Juma, uh, uh, who used to be uh, the president uh, of Aramco. Uh, they're my two co-chairs. Uh, prior to November, I spent the last 15 plus years in Saudi Arabia working as director of new business development. Uh, as Dr. John Duke mentioned, uh, my job for the Alireza family uh, based out of Jidda was um, as director of new business development was to create opportunities uh, for their family of companies to grow, uh, hopefully with uh, relationships uh, with American companies. And so it, it, it was, uh, I was actually blessed in being given the opportunity to learn uh, everything there is uh, to know to date, at least. Um, I'm still growing and learning every day, but uh, about uh, what it takes to, to, um, to implement a true cross-border transaction from soup to nuts with respect to introducing the, the process of introducing an American company to a Saudi company and every, all the steps in between of what needs to happen to make that relationship a reality. And so uh, last summer, the summer of 2019, um, I was approached by, by uh, Abdullah Juma um, to see if I would be interested in taking the reins of the U.S. Saudi Business Council uh, as president and CEO. And uh, the timing of that, sometimes uh, the Almighty works in, in wonderful and mysterious ways because uh, uh, on my personal side and the family, uh, both my wife, Jan, and I, our sons, uh, uh, James and Hall, both got engaged last year. So that means that families are imminent. And if that happens, I know that my wife, Jan, uh, when the family starts to grow, she's gone. And so I would be remaining over there uh, on my own while she's no more than a 20-minute drive from any grandchildren that might come. 
So uh, we were kind of looking unofficially of how we were going to transition back. This opportunity uh, presented itself and the universe was listening. And uh, I took the opportunity um, with, uh, with great thanks. So now I am uh, able to, through the U.S.-Saudi Business Council, to implement the things that I've learned over the last 15 years of how to actually bring U.S. companies and Saudi companies together um, and what our mission simply is uh, here at the Business Council is to do just that, is to use all of our uh, 20-some years of experience in the Business Council combined with my own to, uh, to actually become that partner with the American company because there are so many questions and concerns and they're intimidated by the roadmap into Saudi Arabia and and uh, uh, what we provide is is that that piece of the puzzle that ensures that throughout the entire process of creating this relationship between an American entity and a Saudi entity that nothing falls through the cracks that they feel comfortable that they feel uh, confident that this relationship will work um, uh, because it's it's uh, it's a it's a culture that is old as time is itself, and it's uh, after 15 years of, of living uh, in Saudi and in Bahrain, uh, I'm just scratching the surface. I can't compare to the to my senior fellow uh, Chris Johnson, who uh, who uh, from the from the get go when I first met him when I came over there, uh, Chris was uh, uh, we met through my involvement with MECAC, with the Middle East Council of American Chambers of Commerce. And he was my MECAC mentor, uh, uh, as was Mike Jones, the Washington representative uh, of how we go back to Washington, D.C. And, and make the case on behalf of American companies and Americans living in Saudi Arabia and in the GCC of issues and concerns to, to the House and the Senate and the, the appropriate uh, authorities here in the United States. Um, so this kind of a natural progression, uh, for me was a tremendous opportunity. And so now just as we get started and things are starting to roll, we had, uh, we, as the business council had a number of delegations coming from Saudi Arabia to the United States. Uh, there was, uh, the minister of communications and technology, that wanted to come and have a two-day event up in Silicon Valley to look uh, uh, into opportunities for creating new bridges of friendship. Um, uh, the Minister of Health, we had a, a, a two-day event planned in Newport Beach, California, which uh, for everything health tech and biotech, um, uh, at, which was going to draw all the way from San Diego, from nor Northern California to San Diego and other, in all points, U U.S., to bring uh, breaking technologies uh, uh, in the health tech and biotech to the Minister of Health. Obviously, COVID stepped in. Fortunately, um, uh, we adapted. We at the Business Council adapted pretty well and are adapting better on a daily basis to the Zoom technology and the go-to-meeting technology of virtual meetings. And now uh, we're finding out uh, that this can be a tremendous, uh, tremendously effective way of, of initiating business. But as Chris Johnson so eloquently stated, 
was that the Saudi business culture and the Saudi culture in itself is all about relationships. You really, uh, it's, uh, you, you, they, they want to know you as a human and as a person and as an individual uh, before, and the business will follow. Uh, they, uh, and, and which I personally think is a great thing. Uh, if we all did that a little bit more uh, in our daily lives, uh, things might be drastically different uh, socially and, and uh, politically here in the United States. Um, but so, yes, the, um, the, the idea of face-to-face meetings is, will still happen. But uh, utilizing this technology, uh, we at the Business Council have been tr- very effective in, in, in uh, kind of getting, creating opportunities for those initial meetings and discovery and kind of getting to know you uh, through virtual meetings as we're doing today. And it's working out pretty well, um, I must say. So um, what we're uh, also doing here is because of the COVID uh, we, um, issues and the slowdown here in the United States, it's become clearly uh, v- very apparent that, uh, that U.S. companies are going to be looking for ways to, to catch up. What can we possibly do to, to kickstart uh, our, our re-engaging uh, in the business world? And how can we grow our, our businesses here in the United States? And one of the programs that, that we're implementing, that we have implemented, I should say, uh, here at the U.S.-Saudi Business Council, is what we're calling the States uh, Partnership Initiative. That quite simply means that you can imagine most states uh, here in in our nation uh, export um, products and services to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We have a list that we know how much each state exports, what their what their number is, uh, their revenue from their exports to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We know the companies within those states that do exports, and we also know that with some of the the uh, mega projects that has been uh, discussed here today and will be discussed further as far as opportunities, um, it's become clear that the big guys are they're there. They're in Saudi Arabia. So where is further opportunity for American companies? Um, yes, the big guys will always have opportunities, but there are tremendous opportunities through the creation of these mega projects over there where you look uh, when you start looking at their daily operation and their consumables of products, it's off the chart. And so the opportunity for American companies, small to medium enterprises, it's something that we're going to be looking harder at. And we feel that if we can create, we as a business council can create relationships with the governors in the states that do exports, and also the ones that maybe aren't and didn't know that they could, we'll set up a relationship where we can come into to any state in the union and uh, hold a roundtable and do a presentation for projects like Neom, like Kadia, uh, like Aula, and other mega projects that will provide tremendous opportunities for U.S. companies to grow. Um, uh, and it's not, it's not. It's not creating jobs and moving jobs out of the U.S. because that's not how it works. When they create a small manufacturing operation 
in the kingdom or a final assembly plan in the kingdom. The expertise has to come from the United States. They, did they want to learn how to do it uh, in Saudi? Yes, but the initial expertise has to come from here. So that means that Roosevelt Manufacturing has to send people boots on the ground to build an operation, to become a part of the community, a productive and contributing part of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, and that means that I then have to backfill those positions here in the United States. So it's a job generator. It's not moving jobs out. It's creating jobs on both ends and the opportunity for U.S. companies to grow. So our proposal will be to the various governors throughout the, the United States is we'll come and support your export department in, in creating opportunities for your corporate constituents to learn about opportunities in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And for those who want to continue on, again, we will lock arms with them and take them through the entire process so they will never be alone and never feel uh, confused about what to do next. Or if they hit a hurdle, we will be by their side to help them work through those issues. And it's having relationships like uh, the, the good folks at the uh, National Council for U.S.-Arab Relations, like having relationships with the Chris Johnsons of the world, and specifically with Chris Johnson when it comes to an American company asking, well, you know, how does, how does the whole legal thing happen over there? Well, I've got an American over there who's been there longer than you've been alive that will be able to discuss this with you directly and explain it to you. Uh, so we have a tremendous circle of support uh, that will be able to help these U.S. companies become comfortable uh, in the process of creating new relationships over there. And finally, um, I think that a lot of it is for a U.S. company, and I've seen this in almost every conversation I've had with any U.S. company that's considering doing business in Saudi Arabia, where about 20 minutes into the conversation, I can tell it's coming because it usually starts off with, well, Dell, now you live there, right? And I know what's coming next because this, this president or CEO of the company, they know what the business opportunity is. They get that. That's not an issue. The issue is I'm going to be sending people over there to live. So uh, if I'm sending uh, my, uh, you know, my, ma my, my uh, uh, manufacturing manager or, or whomever, uh, 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 and he's taking his family over there. The question's coming, and, and it's going to be simply, what, is, what does my wife do during the day in Saudi Arabia? Uh, what do my kids do? Where do they, do they, do they play soccer? Do they, do they, what are the schools like? And, and, it's, and they're quality of life issues. And that is uh, a wonderful part of the conversation because I can lend them the experiences that, that Jan and I have had uh, over the last, uh, for her, she was there for about a decade, and for me, a bit longer about what it's actually like to to live, work and play in the kingdom and how what they're going to find there is a society that is incredibly welcoming and engaging and curious and generous. Uh, they embrace you when you come, uh, the, both the expat and the, the Arab uh, community. You, you feel that you're embraced and uh, uh, it's, it's really quite something. Um, Can we end on that note, Dell? Yeah. Yes, please. That was extraordinarily articulate. Well, thank you, John. Focus. And, and 
And Dr. Anthony, we, uh, we're going to go to 1020 for the benefit of our, of our other speakers uh, and guests. So we, we, we do have some, some additional time at the end for, for our speakers and our audience. That's great. We're gonna, uh, come, we'll come back to Chris. We'll come back to Dell. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Anthony. So as not to have an interruption, Dr. Anthony, why don't we go to Ahmed Abu Zanada? Right. Uh, All right. Uh, Ahmed uh, Abu Zanada uh, is even more at the tip of the sphere. Spear and the in the sphere as well. Ahmed Abu Zanada, uh, welcome. Hello and uh, thank you. Uh, a very good morning to all of you. I'm deeply honored to be part of this discussion to highlight the long-standing strategic Saudi-American relations built on a solid foundation stretching back for more than eight decades. It's worth mentioning that the starting point of this relationship was built on commercial ties back in 1930, even before the full diplomatic relations were established in 1933. Since then, the Saudi-American relationship has been deepening and flourishing with the commitment of the leadership of both countries over the years. Saudi Arabia is home of high-income young population of almost 33 million, with the median age being 27 years. This young, educated population is the foundation of Saudi Vision 2030. And toward that future of our nation is implementing the necessary reforms to develop, to, to, to diversify the economy and modernizing the society. Many people asking me why Saudi Arabia. So one of the most, Saudi Arabia is one of the most populous and high income nation in the Middle East, also the heart of the Islamic and Arab world. It remains the largest economy in the Middle East, third largest destination for foreign direct investments in the Middle East, and generates 50% of the GCC economic outputs. Located at the converge of Europe, Asia, and Africa, the kingdom is a natural bridge connecting people and goods around the world, representing a crucial logistics hub for both global trade routes and for business expansions. As you may know, the world is experiencing economic challenges these days, which have slowed and even stalled investments growth. The kingdom, in contrast, is working on, as Mr. Roosevelt mentioned, mega projects, which represents the nucleus of vast investments, such as NEOM, a $500 billion uh, mega uh, project, and other projects like Red Sea, Kidia, uh, which is an entertainment uh, mega project to be established in Riyadh, Al Ula, and many, many others. And these are big opportunities for both American and Saudi companies. The kingdom remains fully committed to, to developing the investment environment by adopting the highest global regulatory standards and transparency to protect domestics and international investors. And I'd like to conclude saying that Saudi Arabia remains open and willing for American investors and market that should not be overlooked. I trust that this discussion will be promising market for the, continu for the continuation of a great value added partnership aiming to fulfill leadership expectation of the both great nations. And I'd really would like to thank everybody for giving me this opportunity.
Uh, Ahmed, we thank you. And uh, the importance of your remarks is uh, more than the, the words, but to, to hear your voice and for the listeners to r realize that they have a friend right there in the uh, headquarters of the headquarters uh, who is favorably disposed and uh, willing uh, off the bat uh, to give serious and favorable consideration uh, to any potential uh, uh, idea you have for furthering uh, business cooperation uh, in the kingdom in tandem uh, uh, with Delano Roosevelt, in tandem uh, with Chris Johnson. Uh, Dr. Anthony, why don't we go on to the discussion uh, and question sessions and... Uh, uh, that's uh, all right, that's fine. Uh, back to you, uh, Chris Johnson. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on the uh, victory that the United States and Saudi Arabia each joined at the hip in tandem uh, to uh, end the Cold War in terms of the effort 70 years on from Moscow to introduce uh, communism on an international uh, scale and how Saudi Arabia in terms of Afghanistan which is viewed differently by so many Americans, uh, but not by Saudi Arabians, uh, who contributed mightily uh, to uh, activities in Afghanistan, which brought the uh, Red Army to its knees and, uh, in effect, nailed the uh, coffin on the last uh, major position in place of influence of Moscow in uh, Middle East and neighborly uh, affairs. Uh, with regard to uh, the challenges now, uh, counterterrorism in the atmosphere since 9-11 and uh, other aspects of that cooperation that are less well known, but to the degree that people think they're known, actually they're misunderstanding, misconceiving, misanalyzing. Could you address that aspect of the challenge, Chris? Absolutely, Dr. Anthony. You flatter me in thinking that I can speak as eloquently and as uh, well-informed a way as you on these issues, but I do have strong feelings, and I do have some uh, insights based on having lived and worked here in Saudi Arabia on its attitude. And it's true that it's been a steadfast partner with the U.S. in opposing the communist socialist model. And uh, this has been based uh, not only on friendship and understanding of our common interest on many fronts with the U.S., but also on its own history and tradition. Saudi Arabia is the um, home place of the birth of Islam, and Islam um, believes in the principles of free markets and trading and economy and uh, all of these things that underpin our own society. So we share that. So it's not based on convenience. It's based on longstanding convergence of values. And uh, uh, it's, um, you know, you cited a few of the most obvious examples, but there are examples every, every day of um, uh, points of common interest between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. And they've been reliable go-to guys to help us on many fronts. And it's not been because of a quid pro quo, a real politique self-interest. It's been because we really do share many of these values. And, uh, you know, and uh, the uh, free market principles... Um, uh, on which our own prosperity is based are shared. And uh, that's been reflected. I uh, made a few comments about that, uh, you know, in joining the WTO. That was um, 
uh, based on a belief in the liberal international free trade system that the U.S. built. And Vision 2030 uh, draws more heavily on uh, Silicon Valley and the U.S. free market entrepreneurial model than anybody. When I go to conferences organized by the MISC Foundation or the uh, Foreign uh, in, uh, Future Investment Initiative, uh, this is the whole theme, that they are hungry for partnership with the U.S. because uh, uh, not of... Uh, self-interest or, um, or uh, uh, convenience, but because of shared values and a genuine belief that our economic system provides a model for their own development in the future. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the cooperation, you know, you do cite a very good example. Uh, Russia was um, on the move back in 1979. And had they had their way in Afghanistan and had they penetrated to, uh, uh, to, to a warm water port, that would not have bode well for our uh, interest in maintaining the freedom of navigation and the international system. And Saudi Arabia played a critical role in stopping that from happening and arguably in turning the whole tide of the advance of communism and leading to the collapse in 1990. Uh, but again, I'm not an expert. I shouldn't be speaking on your territory, but those are my strong feelings. Thank you, uh, Chris, uh, for that enlightening uh, answer and perspective. Um, and, uh, Dell, if you have a comment, please so indicate. If not, um, I'm asking uh, both of you, uh, if you will, to address the obstacles uh, to the relationship, uh, the principal ones. Uh, if, if you won't do it, I'll try to do it. Um, but uh, Bahrain has a free trade agreement with the United States. Oman has a free trade agreement with the United States. Uh, the UAE uh, was en route to having one, uh, but it was disrupted. And of course, uh, Qatar uh, uh, w would love to have a free trade agreement with the United States, if not Kuwait also. Um, but the Israeli lobby in the U.S. Com Congress uh, has control of the narrative uh, too much of the reality in the Middle East. And uh, even before uh, Israel was established, uh, the extremists uh, amongst the founders of Israel regarded Saudi Arabia as their number one nightmare. Uh, their fear was that there would come a day when the playing field would be leveled uh, in terms of uh, foreign direct investment, uh, business opportunities, uh, trade exchanges, the kinds of things that Dell and Chris have, have specialized in. Uh, but the Congress uh, is not necessarily regarded as a friend to this relationship. So how can we better convey the realities that the two of you in uh, Abu Zanata have shared here. Uh, these are the facts. Facts are stubborn things. Facts are related to policies. And for policies that people find unpopular, uh, the soft underbelly of policies uh, is uh, attitudes. And key to attitudes is information, is insight, is knowledge, is understanding, is analysis, and critical thinking. Uh, Chris and Dell. How are we to get over these obstacles? And I uh, left out, uh, not on purpose, but well, just like uh, Chris, if I might take a quick stab. The um, assassination or killing the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. 
Go ahead, either of you. Uh, Chris, can I take a quick step? You're up. Uh, so, Dr. JDA, uh, uh, the, the short answer is is connecting with people. Uh, and unfortunately, so far, uh, you know, after the first couple of months of this year, we ran into this re- an amazing, perfect storm of the COVID-19. It's a 2020, it's a presidential election. And, you know, we know that, that inside the Beltway behaves uh, a lot differently during a presidential election than they normally do in, uh, in a non-presidential election year. Yes. The, what's the good news? The, the silver lining and the, the, the clearing of the storm uh, and that, that bright spark of sun that is shining now uh, 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 that we are working towards and hoping for, quite frankly, in my humble opinion, um, is Her Royal Highness Princess Rima, uh, who, uh, as the ambassador from Saudi Arabia, uh, the first female ambassador to the United States ever, in my conversations with this truly amazing person, um, uh, when I related to her this concept of ours here at the Business Council about the, the state's partnership initiative, she stopped me in a sentence and said, Dell, this is exactly what I want to do. She says, you know, heretofore, the, the, the efforts of the embassy might have been 60% inside the beltway and 40% outside the beltway. And maybe the majority of that 40 might even have been Texas, New York, uh, you know, California maybe. But, uh, and, but she was uh, saying to me that it is her intention to do exactly what I was uh, wanting to do is to go to every state and meet with the governor of every state in the union and talk about the changes that are happening that are happening for the positive within Saudi Arabia and and the opportunities uh, and the opportunities for women in business and and to create those bridges of friendship between American businesswomen and Saudi businesswomen. So I think that the the simple answer and the, the quick the quick fix uh, uh, that will lay the groundwork for uh, for further and more positive relationship is going to be the efforts of this wonderful individual, Princess Rima, uh, and all of us supporting her and her efforts to get out into America and, and forge these relationships. And, and, and by doing so, you negate what, uh, what the media might be talking about that, you know, uh, the, the validity of that, who knows where it comes from, but, but the, but her efforts, I think, is going to be a tremendous way, step forward into uh, getting us to where we should be, despite inside the Beltway. If I may add a point as well, um, if you look back in history, the relationship has, has prospered for 75 years under both administ- under Democrats and Republicans. Yep. And it's not coincidence. Uh, um, uh, Dell's grandfather was a Democrat, and he saw the benefit of the uh, of the strategic partnership. And uh, every president since then has has, uh, with greater or lesser zeal, followed that same model. And it's not um, uh, a coincidence. It's because there is an enduring, converging interest in working closely with a 
positively minded local uh, trading partner with which we've been very entwined in terms of oil and energy policies and which has been receptive and open to sharing our concerns about stability in the region and uh, constraining of potential uh, would-be hegemons. And uh, so there's been a community of common uh, policy that has bound us. And, you know, uh, we live in a partisan age when if one party says white, the other says black. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now. Though what my hope is, whoever wins in November, um, uh, good national interests will prevail and we'll see a continuity of a relationships that served us so well for the last 75 and more years. Thank you, Chris. I couldn't agree with you more on that and uh, elaborating on Dell's point and uh, Royal Highness Princess uh, Remus' point. Uh, the National Council has been uh, privileged uh, to take more than 47 delegations of about a dozen each of America's uh, leaders to Saudi Arabia and other uh, countries in the Arab region. Every single one of them, after about the third day, began to say, I'm so ashamed, I'm embarrassed in terms of what I thought was the reality, but it's upside down, inside out. The reality is profoundly uh, different. Uh, amongst those that we have taken have been 225 members of Congress, uh, their chiefs of staff, their uh, principal foreign affairs and defense uh, issues uh, advisors. Uh, one of uh, the members of Congress that we took uh, in 1987, uh, we're still friends. He became uh, a presidential candidate. And uh, he won one of the one of the states uh, in the primary stakes. Uh, he and I saw each other this last spring, and he said, "You know, John Duke, I am still in touch with those people. Uh, there, it, it transformed my life." This was the word he used there, and his uh, chief of staff uh, said the same thing. Uh, so uh, we're experienced in this. And we're open and receptive uh, to participating in any conversation to explore the possibilities of doing more of this and doing more effectively, too. And one thing that's been largely missing uh, has been follow-up. Uh, in other words, activities, programs, projects, events in the district of these uh, leaders uh, so as to lend credibility to what they say and not to have the rug pulled out from under them by those who are adversarially inclined to uh, strengthening this uh, relationship. So both of you are spot on in terms of what works and uh, what we need to do more of. Uh, Ahmed Abu Zanada, I don't know how many American leaders across your path uh, who have been brought uh, to the kingdom on visitation uh, visits uh, and to increase their familiarization with the kingdom. Um, might you comment on that? If not, um, I can say this, uh, that we had a meeting with uh, the alumni of uh, congressional chiefs of staff about uh, five years ago uh, in the Congress. And uh, the speaker was the counterpart of uh, the position that Dell holds now. And uh, he asked those, how many of you have had 
uh, a representative of the embassy of Saudi Arabia come to your office to talk about follow-up and engagement and how uh, one could build on what occurred during that visitation. And the answer uh, from the members of Congress and their chiefs of staff was none. So we have a lot of work to do there. Uh, Follow-up is an easy concept, but it seems to be one of the most elusive for us mortals uh, to try to implement and bring into effect. Further comments from uh, uh, Chris Odell or Mike Jones coming in from the wings or Ahmed Abu Zanata. If nothing but to reinforce what you just said, Dr. John Duke, uh, you know, the half the battle is just showing up and uh, you, you need to continue. We need to continue to do that and make an effort of uh, to keep these bridges of friendship strong is just showing up and and engaging uh, on a local level in the districts of these congressional and Senate districts, uh, engaging the businesses there and showing them the opportunity because eventually if the representative for those districts are not acting and behaving in such a manner that's supportive of their corporate constituents growing, those corporate constituents are going to pick up the phone and say, why is it that everybody else over in the state next door to us are taking advantage of opportunities and growing uh, through business, developing business relationships in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And, and you're doing things uh, and voting in a manner that will uh, inhibit us from doing the same. That's a yes. powerful thing. You, you mentioned Del, uh, shared values, not just uh, shared needs, concerns, interests. And Without question. But shared values. So where does that come from? Uh, many Americans have asked, uh, what do you think about the Arab region? And the response to many within and outside the Beltway would be, why do they hate us so much? Um, uh, I'm not going to go there uh, or any other place where the people hate us. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we know where that image and stereotype came from, comes from, and is sustained, maintained. It's from those who are adversarially inclined to what all of us on this program are seeking to achieve. Now, ponder the following. There are at least 300,000 Saudi Arabian graduates from American institutions of higher education. Ten years ago, one could say that uh, there were more PhDs uh, from American universities in Saudi Arabia's cabinet then there were PhDs in the White House, National Security Council, House of Representatives, and Senate combined. So there's a massive disconnect, a massive imbalance in terms of who knows and understands the, the other uh, the best. Uh, 300,000 American graduates, uh, uh, Saudi Raven graduates from American universities and the total number of American graduates from Saudi Arabian universities rounded off to the nearest even number is zero. So we have a lot of work to do there. Uh, there are at least 120,000 Saudi Arabians who have condominiums here in the United States, often in the town where they uh, went to school, small town in Arkansas, small town in Kansas, uh, and each year, uh, the father or the mother and the children go back to that town uh, to renew the ties that were so formative 
uh, in the most impressionable uh, years of anyone's life. Agreed. Uh, Patrick, if you want to bring this to a close, you're free to oh, do Oh, sure. Uh, th thank you, Dr. Anthony. And again, I just want to say thank you to, to the various uh, speakers, participants. Um, for more information, uh, you can find them uh, via the Internet. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, we've all learned uh, more than, than we came with. And again, uh, our sincere thanks to, to you, Dr. Anthony, for, uh, uh, for moderating and providing necessary context uh, and input uh, for the benefit of all. So thank you all very much. We appreciate uh, the live broadcast will be available on the National Council's website, and I'm sure the other organizations' websites as well. We I, want to, I want to mention the uh, websites of the participants here sure. slowly so people can write them down. The National Council's is www.ncusar.org, National Council on U.S. Relations.org. Uh, what is yours, Dell, and then what is yours, Chris? The uh, U.S. Saudi... Business Council is us-sabc.org, us-sabc.org. Okay, great. Chris? Chris? Uh, MECAC is M-E-C-A-C-C -C dot net. And um, uh, ABGR, um, our AmCham and Riyadh, ABGRKSA.org. Okay. Terrific. And did uh, Mike Jones come in uh, from the wind? Or Ahmed Abu Zanada? May we have your email address? Yeah. My, 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 my email address is aea.embassy.net. Uh, please feel free to send me any question or comments that I can. AA at saudiembassy.net? A as in Apple, E, A at saudiembassy.net. Okay, that's great. All right. Patrick, uh, wind us up. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate your taking the time and uh, look forward to uh, your joining us in, in future webinars uh, as, uh, as, as they progress. Thank you, everybody, very much. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. All the best to everyone.